you have different people who have different credit cards. You know, these credit cards will buy different subscriptions and you get lost in it, you know? And so you're still paying for things that you no longer use. It happens all the time. So it really is about just doing a deep audit and saying, what do we have right now? And why do we have it? What is it doing? And all right, we use it. Do we use it a lot? Does it help anything? Is one employee using it and they use it seldomly? You're supposed to ask these questions and it really is about just doing you know, a cost analysis. Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. All right, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. We have another great guest for you. We have Adam Metzger. So I actually found Adam on LinkedIn, and what really interested me about Adam was that he has almost 20 years of leadership experience in finance and capital markets, and now he's been working as a fractional CFO and an advisor for startups and growth stage companies. So I'm super excited to chat with him, and I'm sure you guys will learn a lot from him today. Welcome, Adam. Thanks. Good, good to be here. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I've been a, I, I guess, a CFO, consultant, fractional CFO for the last five years, and it was a pretty stark departure from the last 15 years of experience that I had in finance, where it was largely uh, capital markets, so trading in portfolio management. So I, um, I started off trading as a floor trader uh, in the, on the CBOE doing equity derivatives and you know did about a three-year stint over there and then started moving on to different aspects of finance but all within trading and pm uh, portfolio management so i was at a hedge fund trading mortgage bonds and macro before and during the financial crisis and I, then i went over to a money manager and i was running their agency mortgage portfolio uh, and that was from like 08 until 2010 um, and then i went over to a bank where I was starting up different trading units within the mortgage uh, space over there. I did that for, again, about 15 years, you know, the entire stint. Uh, and then kind of got gets tired and disillusioned to some extent. <laughs> I was, you know, it's tired of kind of staring at bond price and, and yields and so all forth. The and then, yeah, I guess we all stare at screens, but we don't usually get as angry as we do when you're trading. <laughs> yeah. But so I started kind of dabbling within startups and I was started working with an accelerator around 2015 in New York, just building out different financial models, uh, doing some budgeting. I mean, they were fairly small at the time, the actual portfolio companies. It was, you know, some were pre-revenue, some had a little bit, but very small teams, you know, two to three people as a whole. And, and I, I just found it very enjoyable. And, you know, it was people who were so dedicated to what they were doing and had such mm -hmm. enthusiasm. And you, you just didn't really see that, I guess, uh, in the kind of trading PM world that I'd lived in for so long. And it just kind of turned into a career. So I've been doing this for about five years, industry agnostic. And it's the interesting thing is that every client is just, you, you kind of never know what you're going to get right until yeah. you kind of dig into the QuickBooks and you see, well, how have they had a finance person before? It's, it's really interesting. I mean, you're building different kinds of models and working with different issues, uh, different people and different personalities, and oftentimes juggling them all at the same time. So yeah, it's been an amazing kind of transition. Just I've learned so much about so many different kinds of companies and industries. 
That is super interesting. And as we mentioned last time, when we um, briefly chatted before this podcast, it's super interesting how you've seen the macroeconomics level of what happens when markets move and demand moves. And now you're kind of in more of a more consulting role where you're working closely with companies and CFOs and people. So how does um, that kind of experience in the investment world kind of apply to your CFO role? Uh, so it is interesting because, I mean, I went from in my previous kind of life, I had been running billion dollar portfolio mm-hmm. and, and now it's obviously on a much more granular scale and smaller scale, but you know, they have even just as much significance to these particular people. It, it is interesting because, you know, a lot of what you hear right now from the standpoint of a CFO, just more than just um, someone, you know, who's a bean counter, you know, you want the strategic CFO. So, and it's more just, are you an accountant? You know, are you, can you manage the books? Can you budget? It's really about working with the different people and, you know, looking at the bigger picture and seeing how you could help a business grow and scale. And that's kind of one of the things that I really try and help my CEOs with is more just how can I get you to and your company to the next stage of where you currently are. And a lot of it's through you know modeling, but also trying to help them look at an industry and see what they need to do in terms of steps, in terms of hiring, in terms of just general infrastructure and innovation um, to kind of propel their business. When I'd been traced, I loved really the macro aspect of just kind of looking at the different levers and the different filaments of what you could yank in a market and see how, you know, see the after effects. I, I think so many people uh, who got into trading, like the first book they read was like Liar's Poker or something like that. Uh, and it really was. This is the first book that I read in Classic. finance when, when I was in college. And it was so interesting, just the idea that there's this one part of the chapter where they talk about like the what if game, where one of the traders on the desk would just name a scenario or an event and they played a what if game saying, okay, what happened if this happened? And I think they use the example of in the book where, I mean, it was a real life example, you know, it was like Chernobyl hit what happened. And I mean, it's obviously very dark, but like, I mean, they use like black swan events to see how you could predict different things. Um, And then, you know, they looked at like the immediate effects, but also what are the secondary and tertiary ones in terms of the different economies and like beyond what would interest rates do, but what would like, what do crop yields do, you know, given certain events. And I've been trying to use this kind of mindset, you know, when I work with my clients and try and help them look beyond the immediate and see just the long-term vision of what their company could go and how it could grow. That is so important right now when you say the Black Swan event, because we're, you know, living in one right now. With We COVID-19. are in a Black Swan event. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's super timely. So what advice do you have for CFOs and growing companies to kind of get through this event based on both your tactical CFO experience and also as a trader? Yeah, well, right now it's just all hands on deck. I mean, yeah. it's a, it's a terrible time. There's so much hardship. I mean, you constantly see, read about, and, and hear about different different layoffs. And uh, I think Airbnb just you know released like that they're laying off 25 percent of a company today. And tough. Um, yeah, it's awful. Um, and and it really is about it's part of it circling the wagons, and part of it is trying to you know, see how you can keep your company afloat. Right? You can't predict when a black swan event is going to happen. That's the entire nature of a, of a black swan event. The idea is to prepare yourself in case of anything happening. So, I mean, if you're trading, I mean, it was about 
buying out of the money calls and having any kind of insurance or buying out of the money puts and have any kind of insurance to the extent of like the company that you're covering, you know, if you're trading options, you know, if you're long it and takes a dirt nap, then like you want to be covered on the downside. Yeah. So, I mean, how does that apply to startups? Well, prior to October when we were, you know, had its large hiccup you know, during its its initial IPO prospectus, it was all running and gunning, you know? I mean, just grow um, with reckless abandon to some extent and just get that top line growth. And nothing else mattered. Gross margin didn't matter. Budgeting really <laughs> didn't matter. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, as long as revenue is going higher, you know, I mean, we are pay- on our IPO, we do not see a path to profitability, which is amazing, you know, that you can actually put that in an IPO. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And so I guess to some extent, the entire kind of dynamic has changed. Mm-hmm. Even before the pandemic, you know, COVID-19 kind of came, that had changed, that had shifted. VC mindsets has, you know, did and has shifted, you know, forever. And they do need to see the path to profitability. In terms of what to do now, I mean, it really is just about trimming whatever you can. You obviously try and want to save the human cost as much as possible. Um, so prior like any layoffs you have, you know, take away what you don't need anymore. I mean, it's going to be remote for a while. So can you just get out of your lease? I mean, one of my clients has, we recently did that. And the fact that, you know, everyone's going to be remote for the next eight months, probably. And so in January, like what are commercial spaces going to be doing? Probably a lot lower than they are now. So just True. think, that, yeah, they're going to be, I mean, it's going, to be it's going to be a disaster. Yeah. yeah. Get off your leave. I mean, if you need to sacrifice, like, I mean, depending on how much, you know, you're not going to get your security deposit back, but at least you're not having any cash out the door. So it is, it is interesting. At this point, like going forward, you really are going to need a buffer, right? I mean, yeah. ideally it would be amazing to have six months of expenses in the bank and survive the the ability to have your revenue just drastically cut. Um, again, it's hard. It's really hard just given the circumstances. And I think everyone's fighting for every penny right now. Totally. Yeah. Some startups don't even have like six months of runway, which is the crazy part. I think like when a lot of, um, you know, newer CEOs or, you know, early stage startups, they don't really think about this, especially if they're at the grow, grow, grow phase. Let's spend in order to grow and let's make bigger moves so that it pays off in the future. But then, you know, this whole Corona thing came out of the left field and now people are kind of forced into this position where we need to start looking towards the future and also making sure that we're being fiscally responsible. It's a pretty interesting shift. Well, it's interesting, right? I mean, the idea that you're supposed to be, hey, guys, it would be a great (laughs) idea to be fiscally responsible. That would be a good (laughs) idea. It it just really isn't in the mindset of a lot of CEOs because it's it's hard. It's hard to juggle growing your business, dealing with the human aspect of being a business leader and also manage your finances. Like that's why you have a CFO. And, And it just so happens that a CFO is kind of one of the, you know, the later additions to most companies. As a CEO, most of your time, I mean, you have your time split between sales, obviously, but you know, that's 25% of it. The next 75% is just dealing with your employees and, and not in a bad way. It's just, these are the people who are building your business, you know, from every different department and you just spend most of your time on that. So you just don't have time to deal with any of the finances. You just figure like, I raise a bunch of money. I've got a debt facility too that uh, when we run out, I can tap that and, you know, give me a few months more runway. And so I'll start raising about six months before my money runs out. And 
at that point, I think the raise could take, let's say four months you know, conservatively. And at that point, I still have two months of runway and then you know, I'll have all the rest of the money in the bank, yeah. which is great unless the markets freeze up, which they have now, which they did in 08, which they did again in 2001. But you know, as we talked about before, most CEOs right now of startups, of newer startups, never saw a bear market, right? And so <laughs> it's hard to prepare for that. All you know is that the S&P in 2009 was you know, 660 and now it, you know, then it goes to 3,300. That's great. Things just go up into the right. Well, that's my revenue. It just goes up into the right. That's perfect. <laughs> So it's a lot of it is just a, a mindset and just you know, the experience of what they've seen before. And, you know, it's the job of the CFO to facilitate the growth, but also maintain, you know, a level of discipline and push mm-hmm. back against the CEO. It really is. You know, challenge their assumptions and they're supposed to challenge yours, you know, but it's what I try and do is help them think about some of the aspects that they might not be considering in terms of customer onboarding, you know, how to you know, staff the company as your product grows, what that means for mm-hmm. CX, everything that they just, a lot of times people just don't think about. Totally. And I think it's super timely right now too, because um, on the finance community end of things on LinkedIn, everyone's talking about scenario planning. You know, Everyone's talking about, oh, what does a worst case scenario look like? What does good scenarios look like? So in your opinion, what are some steps for finance leaders to really make sure that they're planning well for the future, for when coronavirus is over, but also beyond so that they're actually, you know, thinking about this in a sustainable way? Yeah. When I typically build my models, you know, it encompasses like a scenario analysis of base case, aggressive, and then the conservative, which is basically what happens when your revenue just gets cut by whatever, 30% or something like that. You look at these as an example and you tie it to what you'll need to do in terms of your your staffing and and cuts and other things like any kind of T&E or or any other supplies that you do tie to your revenue as well in case there is a precipitous drop. Now, in terms of just COVID, well, it's interesting because a lot of companies have have really accelerated their growth. You know, as a mm-hmm. result, their their industry you know may have been lagging before, but now it's in vogue. I mean, you know, telehealth is an example. It it was growing and it was kind of on the horizon of like, yeah, I think this is something that really could pick up steam, but all of a sudden it's everything, you know, and yeah. now VCs are gonna want to pour money into it. But to some extent, you really have to plan for what happens in the reopening stages. So you know, from February to March, you know, if you're in telehealth, you know, your revenue probably accelerated dramatically, literally a two to three X month over month. And then again in April, perhaps. But what happens over the summer during the reopening? What happens in the fall? And you really just have to start being you know, very responsible that you just don't see a continuous straight line of growth in terms of percentages. You're just going to get yourself in trouble. And so it really just takes into account a bit more granularity in terms of some of your scenarios. So instead of just doing, you know, you don't want to just do like a compound growth rate on your monthly, uh, your customer acquisition, it's going to have to be much more meticulous, you know, and Mm -hmm. in terms of just your cash flow management, you probably want to go on a much more granular level as well and start doing, you know, a 12 week cash flow, uh, because at any point in time, these things could be curtailed significantly. Yeah, most definitely. It's really interesting seeing the different industries go through these scenarios. Like you mentioned, I just spoke to another CFO 
last week about his company where they had to adapt to a fully remote model within two weeks, which is crazy. They're like a mental health counseling clinic. They were still used to working one-on-one with clients. And now they're like, okay, we got to move on to all this new software. We got to move on to all this teleconferencing software and teach people how to use it. So the guy's like, I don't even have time to build models. I'm just trying to support my team in figuring out what vendors we need to onboard and how to get the training out to the team. (laughs) Yeah. Culturally, it's very interesting as well. There are companies that have been remote since they began. I think like Buffer is, you know, an all remote company. So they thrive in this. You know, a lot of companies have like outsourced engineering teams. And so to some extent, there has been kind of a shift towards this, obviously. But for everyone to be thrown into it all of a sudden, it's pretty alarming. And obviously, to the extent of how you navigate managing a team, uh, which is very difficult as well in this environment, um, especially, I mean, a lot of like you can't get a nanny, you know, you people have kids, yeah, you know, it's, it's that's just, you. <laughs> that's me. Yeah, that's me. So we have an infant and it's very tough you know, to working parents. Obviously, as a leader, you have to just have some form of tolerance to, this. you know, aside from just the financial aspect of like you know, diligence within your team, which is hugely important and very difficult. But there's a human cost to it as well, because you have employees who are just stuck at home and you have to worry about their mental health and how they navigate their life. It's very serious. And it's something that you know, a lot of my clients have started to kind of, you know, we've been discussing constantly. Like, how do we take care of our team uh, when they're not there? Well, you know how days have just melded into one another? Yeah. You don't know what day it is. You really don't know a day. With it. Even the weekends means nothing. It means nothing. And so you can kind of get into a trap of just like working all the time. So how do you take a break? You know, how do you have off days? These are really, they're really important and people have to kind of really navigate them. It's interesting because when we're talking about cutting costs and also a lot of people saying this is not a good time for us to evaluate tools to really help us throughout this time. How do you balance that level of needing more support in the technology side, but also making sure that, you know, you're not spending the money for the wrong reasons? Well, it's, it's hard for everything to have an ROI to it, or it's hard mm-hmm. to get that from a lot of departments. But to some extent, it should be, you want to try and model that as much as you can. So if you're going to spend this, what can this yield in terms of not just dollars, but what could it do in terms of helping propel an organization or a different department or save any kind of cost in terms of just you know adding different employees? So you try and just do just try and look at it from the standpoint of just efficiency modeling as well. And just kind of look at it that way. It gets very difficult because every single department, they want more resources. Yeah. You give, you give them a budget and they want more resources. I'm the most important one, obviously. <laughs> I'm the most important one. Like, look at this is, I mean, they, a lot of times they can't point to why they are, but they need more and more resources. So it really is kind of a push pull. Here's the budget. You know, this is where we need you what you need to get there. And it's really just kind of a push-pull. And that's always an interesting part of just the budgeting process, which is kind of interesting that considering like most most small startups don't ever do a budget. (laughs) I mean, ever. It's just crazy to me. Yeah, but up until like a series B, a lot of companies just they'll never do a budget. I mean, a lot of companies, they don't do a monthly rec. So, you know, it's not outrageous to see that they don't do a bit more of the sophisticated finance parts too. Do you think that when it comes to even the budgeting models, that company should start rethinking it now that you know they have to really cut their costs and they really have to make sure every dollar is being spent properly? Yeah, well, I mean, this is really just forcing people into fiscal discipline. 
um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of as you mentioned before, and sh- you should always be doing it. And a lot of companies just the horse is out of the barn, right? Because if you're in an industry that's hurt and your runway isn't significant and your revenue has been just drastically reduced, you have to take drastic measures like you really do. That's everything that we've seen. I think a lot of companies might have been on this path anyway in terms of their eventuality, but with an economy that was doing very well and continued VC funding, there was no reckoning. And that's kind of what we're seeing. You know, a lot of companies will just, in some industries, are just gone. And uh, something new will spring into place. But it really is just about this dramatic shift in how how leaders, finance leaders, are are going to have to manage their companies and their budgets going forward. I mean, you know, forever. Yeah. It's, It's a good thing. It's a good thing. That aspect. I mean, there's obviously so many horrible aspects that are coming along with it that trump everything else. But... But I mean, company, they shouldn't grow with reckless abandon. It's, it's reckless abandon. <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah. Totally. Like what we said last time, this is like the boss battle, right? Like, can you get through this round? If not, you know, that's it for you. Yeah, it's, it's really, I think a lot of companies too, who are just starting off with, which could have been a promising model, they never got a chance to exist. So it's very interesting. Just to switch it off a little bit. Everyone's talking about, you know, cutting costs and making sure that you have enough runway. But what are some things that you think are actually good investments for a company at this time to think about investing in or to grow? Oh, it's really hard to think of what they're like, oh, you know, where should we put our money right now? All my clients, a lot of the decisions that they've been making is like, how do I maintain the status quo right now? How do we keep our company whole? And it really isn't about, you know, no one's like, putting money in, a, in an ERP or anything like that um, and, yeah. or doing like a, a massive, but a lot of it is just kind of efficiency tools. So, I mean, if you have a bunch of softwares that, you know, lead into one vertical, but all do different things, I mean, there's ways that you can actually cut out the different pieces and like go to one, just, I guess, one streamlined software that just does all these jobs, but does it cheaper. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, whether it's open source and it's an efficiency tool, I mean, that's where people are kind of, they're streamlining their operations. And uh, I think that's, it's just part of the budgeting process and being savvy and uh, resourceful. That's kind of where we are right now. That's what you need out of your leaders. It's really about how can I save money, but not sacrifice efficiency mm-hmm. and not affect yeah. any kind of sales or any kind of operational mobility you know, that my company has. How do we do this? And still maintain this level of efficiency that we have but you know or even more so totally yeah so it's really just about finding the better mousetrap it's interesting because this is almost going back to um, simon sinek's classic book start with why because i think in during a growth phase of a company you tend to want to like oh this is a really cool shiny object let's buy that let's ooh, look at this tool that can help us do project management let's buy that but now companies are looking back at their tech stack and being like, why did we have this in the first place? Why do we need it? Do we want to have it moving forward? Or is there a better solution that we can just clump it all together? So yeah. it's pretty interesting because like from our end, being a vendor of a procurement software, we've had a lot of talks with clients where they're now kicking back the budget for tools that they might not need. And sometimes it's, this also is a good thing too, because they're saying, oh, we actually want to add more seats onto what we already have so that we can just get rid of the ones that we were thinking about. So it just makes it a lot easier for them to manage 
especially subscription spending. That's always a fun thing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is, is that a lot, uh, I mean, you're bringing up a really good point. And I think a lot of companies tend to, I mean, because you have so much turnover, obviously, over the years, and you have different people who have different credit cards. You know, these credit cards will buy different subscriptions and you get lost in it, you know? And so you're still paying for things that you no longer use. Crazy. Yeah, but it happens all the time. So it really is about doing a, just doing a deep audit, right? And saying, what do we have right now? And why do we have it to your point, you know? And mm -hmm. what is it doing? And all right, we use it. Do we use it a lot? Does it help anything? Is one employee using it and they use it seldomly? I mean, you're supposed to ask these questions and it really is about just doing you know, a cost analysis, just going through everything. And there are amazing softwares that, you know, that actually help with this, you know, streamline the entire finance process. You know, I think team pay is like a really good one where they go through all your subscriptions and they just kind of link everything that you have in terms of what is a recurring uh, subscription, you know, and you mm -hmm. can do virtual cards or whatever it is, but going through these exercises and just kind of doing that deep audit is hugely important all the time. You should do this on like a quarterly kind of <laughs> frequency, but like, especially now, where I think there was so much time that went by where things like that, these exercises were never done, you know? Totally. We should put that as a little chat box here. Adam's recommendation. You should be doing this every time, not just now. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> so this is more like a fun question for you since you've also worked in the investment and in finance. And obviously everyone knows with um, every crisis, there is some sort of opportunity. There was a lot of um, amazing companies founded in the last economic crisis of 2008. I think um, Airbnb might be one of them yeah. and a few others. It might, I think even Lyft and Uber. So with this Black Swan event, what do you think are the next round of tools that will change the way that we work for the future? Well, I think a lot of it is some of the industries that had been kind of, you know, bubbling at the top. I mean, telehealth is one of them. But, you know, it, it is interesting to see what some of the industries that hadn't gotten so had been around for a while but given the potential of remote working and what that will mean for people who may be at high risk like what that'll do so i would be very interested to see the applications of, of ar into some of into like this potential new reality in terms of just kind of i mean new industries and new investments i mean i don't know i mean if i knew that then i would probably then <laughs> you could be a vc i would have of my own vc um, no, but the thing is when people are struggling, when there's massive disruption, you know, that is when opportunity lies. And, you know, the fact is that we're all in the shit right now and it just, you know, shit is the, the best fertilizer, you know, and things, things <laughs> okay. do they grow out of it. And whether or not we will be stronger as a result of this, I hope so. People will find new and innovative ways to coexist and to deal with some of the problems that, you know, that we are kind of going through. And yeah, this is going to be a very bumpy road over the next year or two, but it will be very interesting to see what we come out with at the end. Totally. And it's never going to be like normal ever again. I don't think we're going to ever go back to how we used to work. People are now starting to see, oh, this remote model might work for us after all. You know, there's some pretty old fashioned industries out there where they would never entertain the idea of getting their employees to work from their home, but now they don't have a choice. And they see that, you know, it, it could work. And I think once we go back to the office for the ones that do want to go back, 
there's also going to be a portion of the people that might just stay remote. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how that will change the new normal for finance people. Yeah, it'll definitely make it more difficult because the collaboration is just more difficult. It just is, without a doubt. I don't think this is the new normal. I think that this, that it could be a hybrid model, but humans, we're not built for this. We're not built for remote hermit living. Like people, we strive, it's, we strive for touch and human interaction. Like the reason people, I mean, if not, then a shelter at home would not be a big deal, but it is a big deal because people are cooped up. And to some extent, it has been nice working from home here and there, but it's not tenable. And not just because I have a five-month-old. It's because you do miss that kind of collaboration and that comes from in-person work environments. And it's yeah. not even that. I mean, at that point, you know, we like, let's just put all colleges online. You know, you don't go to college just to go to classes. Yeah. You know, you go for the growth and the, the human interaction. And totally a lot of that is the same for work. So whether or not there will be a hybrid model where four day come to work and then like a whatever, a Friday or something like that. I mean, some companies may just do all remote, but there are, I think that they will have certain employees who function better as a result that they only want to be remote and like they do better work like that. But, you know, even one of my clients, when we discussed the idea of canceling our rent and just doing remote for the next eight months, you know, the CTO just stood up and said, look, I think he stood up. He was on Zoom. I assume he, (laughs) but he said, look, this is not what I want for the long term. I mean, this is good for now. I understand the business reason, but this is not something that I need my team to be collaborative. And we can only do that as efficiently as possible when we're in a room together. So I don't think that if we have the capacity to work in the same place together, I think that we will. It's interesting because you really do miss some of the water cooler talk sometimes, you know, when you're not in the same room with the people that you work with and they really become a lot of your friends. So for me, I'm so used to that where I can just walk over, tap someone on the shoulder. Hey, how's your day? Give them a hug. I don't even know. Going back to the office for hugs. I feel like that's even going to be taboo after this. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's funny. I hate water cooler talk. I'm just like, generally, like, I mean, you're fine. No, but like, no, but I'm generally just a grumpy, grumpy guy at the office. But yeah, you you have exchanges of ideas, you know, like, especially for startups, right? The idea of just a whiteboarding session. It's very difficult to do that, like from Zoom, you know, I think that there was it was funny. I I think I was uh, they had a um, they're doing some Supreme Court hearings that you could listen into and wow. um, which is crazy. And I think I saw some tweet where some guys like, I could be wrong, but I think I just heard a toilet flush, you oh know, and God. it's just funny. It's just very interesting what we've been thrown into and how we're just reacting and, and kind of surviving within it. Totally. We actually tried a whiteboarding session with um, this app. I forgot what the name was. But it was so funny because some people have the shittiest internet. So (laughs) you just see the person's cursor just freeze and you're like, oh, we're waiting. We're waiting. What's going on? I totally can imagine like we try to replicate, you know, what we're used to at work. But sometimes it just doesn't work as well as if you're in person. Yeah, not at all. (laughs) It really doesn't. And, you know, I think that as things begin to relax and people continue to stay at home, there would be a shift. 
Yeah. People who just kind of got tired of it. And then I think the market would kind of work itself out. Every company would kind of find its own different balance. Totally. That's a hopeful wishing for the I know. <laughs> it's, and I'm not that guy. So look at that. Look at You're that. Like, I'm a pessimist. No small talk for me. Yeah. See ya. <laughs> I'm a pessimist. I, I graduated in 2000 in the Bay Area. Oh, man. Things were bad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've seen a lot, man. Like, you've seen all the economic downturns so far. So, yeah. It's, <laughs> there's two things about that. So, I graduated in 2000, and the first job that I had lined up after college was taken back, was pulled back just because everything in the Bay Area had just gotten destroyed. And then, you know, I was a mortgage trader during the mortgage crisis, which was pretty intense. And then kind of going through this, but even before this, it really shifts your viewpoint on things, right? It has been interesting. I mean, it, it can give you the ability to have like a negative slant on things. So it has been important. I've, de I've definitely been very mindful of having to just understand where I'm coming from and not always have a pessimistic viewpoint on things, which is interesting and kind of juxtaposes pretty well with a lot of the CEOs who tend to be very positive people, at least inwardly, tons of demons. But I mean, <laughs> outwardly, they're pushing their company as far as they can. So it, it has been a good, uh, a good yin yang in terms of the viewpoint I bring based off of, you know, a lot of the experiences that I've had in my uh, professional career. Totally. And that's super important because like you, you got to also be real about it or else you're not going to want to make the decisions that are sometimes hard. Yeah, exactly. But you need those viewpoints. Totally. Yeah. So maybe we can end it off in a more fun note. This is something that we ask every single guest. It's just like a nice vulnerable moment. We do this at Procurify actually. Every time someone new joins the company, we get them to answer, what is your most embarrassing moment? <laughs> oh, well, it's funny in trading or anything like that. If I had an embarrassing moment, it means I lost millions of dollars. And so it's it just like, since I've had a uh, kind of an infant and been like thrown up on and pooped on in public, oh, no. you know, you kind of lose all your, I'm not embarrassed anymore. So that's about it. Yeah. At this point, it's really just trying to survive with our baby. Um, I don't know. I think it just... I can't think of an embarrassing moment. It's just been a lot of, it's not embarrassment. Like, uh, and I guess everything, it's just, you, you feel humbled here and there, yeah. both in you know professional life, but also in personal. And it really is about just becoming grounded and being a first time parent and kind of thrown into this situation and having gone through a lot of really, really in crazy and intense periods in my professional career you really do get grounded. And so I didn't mean to take a sober tone on this. Um, oh, no worries. I mean, what is typically a lively conversation. Um, but you get humble given a lot of where we are and that we, you know, we're here, we're healthy, and that there's so much going on right now that is horrible and people are going through a lot of pain. So right now, all that I can think about is just how lucky we are and how humbled we are to have what we have. And, and for me to be kind of working with the clients that I have who are just great companies and great people and that I can continue to do this every day. So yeah, sorry, it's not embarrassing. It's everything embarrassment. It's just all I feel is like very humbled. And that's a beautiful perspective and a good way to end it too. Because yeah, sometimes right. people take like, you know, like the crazy, oh my God, like I accidentally forgot my pants or something like that, you know, but I think this is a really good message for everyone. 
to have is just to be thankful for the things that you have right now and even be thankful for the experiences that you've gone through because that's what makes us us. Very well said. Yep. Well, thank you so much again, Adam, for joining us on the show. I personally learned so much about both the macroeconomics of Black Swan incidents, but also learning a lot about more of the tactical things that a company can do to really take their company through this crisis. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me and thank you so much. And if anyone wants to connect with Adam, I will leave his LinkedIn profile link onto blog posts as well. Thanks for tuning in on another episode of Spend Culture Stories. If you like this series, please support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe so you can get notified of the newest episodes. We try to post every episode every Wednesday. This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a software solution that is reinventing the way organizations spend. Procurify allows an accessible and convenient way to request for purchases, get approval from your manager, while allowing your finance team to get the visibility and control you need on every purchase. Learn more about Procurify at www.procurify.com.